This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. In episode 13, an artist joins Joe and Matthew to talk about his practice, sustainability, the hipster aesthetic, dumpster diving, and epaulettes. But first, where is he from? And is it just in rabbit doe or just in rabbit do? upstate New York. Uh, so if you go seven hours north of New York City, I'm right on the Canadian border. Oh, wow. So in like the Adirondack region of New York. Yeah. Could we get the correct, on the record pronunciation of your last name? Rabidou. Yeah. I'm sorry. Rabideau. I've been guilty in the past of... Rabideau? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you know... They should, they should have an X on it. Well, that makes sense then from where you're from. I get it. Mm-hmm. French. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But the trick is, though, I think Rabideau is probably more accurate than Rabideau. Really? I think. I mean, if you were if you were saying it in a French way, I would say that it would probably be Rabideau, not Rabideau. I mean, it does need the X, but even then... Has anyone ever said rabbit rabbit Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Was that like in college you got that a lot? <laughs> I think all throughout. In, in elementary school, it was like rabbit do, like rabbit poop. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I would have not I wouldn't yeah. have thought of that. Yeah. Isn't that I fun? It was hilarious. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's for these kids, I tell you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going? Yeah, well, we've been going. Yeah. Oh. Um, I hope that makes it to the podcast. Something. No, it will. Uh, it will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've enjoyed your work for a while. Thanks. And, you know, let's not forget, I've also enjoyed and witnessed firsthand your work as executive director. Executive director? Sure. I mean, that makes it sound... Fancier. Well, it's, just, it, it's just director. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like all of that. You know, that, I feel like putting executive in front of a director just like it's gilding the lily. <laughs> That's great, <laughs> gilding the lily. Um, yeah. No, really so, how much more of a director yeah. in, do you need to be? You know, well, yeah. You got the executive director, and then you got the director. Yeah. No, director. Right. Um, no. So, director of the Zuckerman yeah. Museum of Art. Yeah. At Kennesaw. It's rare to see someone so strong, both on the creative side, and then also to be able to um, to conduct business in the way that you do. You, yeah. you, you do a great job up there, and uh, thanks. Well, it's a labor of love. I think is the only reason why that you know that we have. I think the success that we do is because everybody that works there is so passionate about it. I mean, it's really. And it's kind of been an amazing trip. I mean, not to go too deep into the into that, but it's been kind of an amazing trip and journey seeing that growth. Um, yeah. You know, I've been there for five years, and it was the museum was a hole in the ground when I got there, and we had two people on staff, and now it's like this. You know, we've been able to build this this like group of people that have been like driving this this new organization. You know, it's kind of amazing to see that. That yeah, you know. So I think that that kind of passion only comes from something that when you're like really like starting it from nothing, you know, everything's new. Joe and I were talking. We were talking earlier about your 
your history, and it's 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 unusual. <laughs> it's unusual. It, it, yeah. Five years into a, a major, you know, you're a director of a of a major museum. You know that I've all my experiences and and getting to know some of the people you work with. You know, definitely best practices come to mind. You guys seem to be really on it, and uh, and also, but not obtrusive. You know, there are some institutions that. Um, are very heavy-handed, and uh, yeah. that's impressive. You know, to think like you've had rapid growth, you've put on some pretty. Uh, you've had some controversy, you know, with yeah. some of it, which is also good in terms of PR Sorry. and all that kind sure. of stuff. Get people talking, get people in the door. <laughs> but, but then again, I'm sure like that's a lot of your time, yes. and phone calls or Definitely. meetings. And yeah. yet, so how do you balance that, like with like the studio, and, and where is the studio, like? Right. Let's talk to you. Let's like kind of switch gears here and get to you in terms of like you as artist. You know, I'm sure your day job feeds feeds it on some level, but I'm just I'm really curious. Like, how do you how do you balance? That? How do I balance that? Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I really do balance it um, that well. Um, you know, it, it people I get that question a lot. Sure. Yeah, obviously, and it's it's always um, uh, very flattering. To hear that you know that people are, are seeing these two worlds that I'm that I'm that I'm living in um, and recognizing those two worlds, and I I, I really actively try to um, wear two very different hats mm -hmm. um, when it comes to Justin the director and Justin the artist. I try to really separate those worlds, um, and I think that's one of the the ways that I manage it is that I really see them. Um, working within these two very different spheres um, and really treating uh, both of them as a job, you know, and yeah. I think I've spent a lot of my life doing multiple things just like we all do. We all learn how to multitask along the way. Sure. Um, and, you know, like going going along in life and, and kind of having multiple jobs, you know, working two different jobs, having different lives, you know, doing things, you know, that, that uh, intersect, but then also kind of exist in different places. And in a lot of ways, I kind of just treat it like I've treated anything else that I've, that I've been working with in tandem in my life and, and really treating them both with as much care and as much respect as I can. Uh, and then just managing, and it's, it turns into like this this idea of time management, and you know, like so. One one of my instructors told me uh, when I was in in college, he was like talking to me about managing an, an art practice, and he was like, you know, basically you need to treat your art practice like a job. Yep. Right. Right. So you know, you've got to put in and clock in the hours to in order to like to do it right and. I think that has been that that advice rattles in my head whenever I am thinking about studios that I've got just as much as I need to like clock in at work and put the time in and sometimes it's you know sometimes I'm ha I'm lucky and it's an eight hour day and other days it's like a you know sixteen hour day sure um, but you offset that with like all right so like if I'm working all putting all my time into the Zuckerman. At one moment, then the other moments that I have free, I clock in and I put that time into my studio practice. I don't know if that's a really good answer. Well, no, it is. Um, like, where is your studio, for instance? So I recently just moved my studio to my house. So I just bought a, a home. Um, 
So I have a studio within my living quarters, which is really nice. It's been like a nice transition. Sure, it cuts down on your commute. And, yeah. And, you know, yes. I bet you you're finding more time. Like, oh, I can get an hour in instead of, I don't want to drive to the studio. It's like a totally different approach um, that I'm learning to negotiate. Like, I, I assumed that I would do that immediately. Uh -huh. And it's really been like a learning process about figuring out that I can do that. Because prior to having the studio at my house, I had a studio at the goat farm. And uh, it was perfectly positioned directly in the middle between work and home. Sure. Okay. So it was like this, like this no man's land or this middle ground where I would like, if I was there, I would just be there and I'd have to work. Now when you're home, you have to like negotiate with yourself whether or not you're going to go down and work in the studio. Right. Um, uh, but I'm, it's like learning a new, um, it's like learning a new dance almost. Yeah. I mean, there definitely there are trade-offs, but yeah, uh, I really, you know, I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, what made me feel comfortable about doing it was doing a recent, um, residency at Hambage, uh -huh. you know, where the, the living studio, the uh, living space and the studio were together. And even just in a two week period, I was like, that was the first experience I've really had where it was like living within the studio space. And I was like, I, I could get behind this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's something really nice about having that, that intimate connection with your studio and your life. For my, all of my artistic practices has often been separated, mm -hmm. lives in its own little bubble. So it's like finding a new language there. So something that's interesting to me about, about your work is, okay, you need, you know, woodworking, wood shop, in addition to traditional kind of dust-free studio yeah painting space right uh kind of they they, they kind of mix and match okay yeah i must i'm a i am i so admire i think i don't know if this is true or not i think as artists we kind of admire the the artwork that we can't that we don't do the most i don't know if that's true or not for me it is like i really admire artists that are really meticulous and like very like you know very like structured in their sense, form yeah. and, and in their practice and I'm such a messy artist that I, I like there's a lot of I'm not worried about like having dust in my paint <laughs> so when you saw Joe's studio your reaction yeah I'm into it it's like wow this is like this is not my world and it's like I'm really like this is cool it, it is like, a clean day and things have been pushed aside and tables yeah. moved but yeah I mean even looking at, at the paint I know here, like, look at the paint Sorry, this is radio. It's awesome. So you can't podcast, but you can't you can't see it. It's very organized. Listen. My to excuse it. always, though, is we're all asking ourselves a million questions, you know, while you, while you're working. So the last thing I want to be thinking about is where is to paint or right. You know, so if I can limit, I'm about That's limiting. That's good. Uh... And, and yet, I I mean, this is you know, I've I've pontificated on this studio many times on the podcast, but. You know what a luxury to have 550 or so square feet. You know, yeah. big ceilings. There's room to think and walk and breathe in here. But um, you know, the minute I start feeling like cluttered and all that, it I feel like my work is cluttered enough. You know, I like to try to streamline. Right. Yeah. You know, in a perfect world, it'd be great to have kind of like the white box with something on the wall and wrestle with that. There are times um, when, like, say, working, I work in series a lot, and it can really get you stuck in that loop you know just 
going in circles from one thing or another. So that's one thing I can control. And uh, but you know, I always think whatever works uh, for you. Um, you know, and one of the things that's probably why you, you were talking about going to see some studios, and that's why I love to go see where people work. And we were in Michi yeah. Studio um, about a week and a half ago, and. You know, I was thinking back to a lot of that epic work from, you know, like say the 50s in New York, how many, um, you know, Rothko and, but giant works that were made in really, really small confined yes. spaces. Yeah. And that notion of limitation and yeah. yet, you know, Pollock in a barn where you could see through the, you know, the slats. And, uh, you think about the cooning in that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think people oftentimes self-limit, you know, in a way, you know, like they, they have this kind of predetermined notion that they need X space or they need, you know, um, this certain tool. And thankfully, I mean, I I came from and I studied with uh, people that really thought that that was kind of a bullshit excuse as an artist. And so I've kind of learned along the way that you kind of you make your own space and you make your make your own uh, possibilities within that space. Yeah. And um, I think I I come with that kind of ethos to my practice and and my life and my work. I mean, I think that I approach everything with like, yeah, I could probably do that. All I need to do is just think about it in a creative way. Oh, I love that. You know? Yeah. I mean, I. I I've found a lot of people over the years, it's always, well, my next space, if I only had the right, room, if only right, this, yeah, this, I just yeah. keep thinking, yeah. um, you know, um, I'm kind of, a, I hate, hate the term old school, but, you know, even if it's down to ordering supplies, not necessarily quarterly, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like definitely kind of put it in batches, and otherwise, if you run out of something, you run out of it, use something else. Yeah. Uh, to force, uh, you know, force some new thinking and new ways of working. Like, there seems to be a few things that I gleaned that maybe are, I don't know if these are strategies, but like for one, collaboration seems very important to you and obviously choice of materials. So you could take your pick like where you'd want to latch in. Yeah, well, um, yeah, okay. So the choice of materials, I can talk about that. Actually, that, well, that was what kind of came to mind when you were talking about like figuring out a way to get resources yeah. as, an art, uh, as an artist. Um, you know, the salvage wood, Honestly and truthfully, came out of a, uh, out of a a way to for me to continue making sculpture and artwork that was economical and also something that that I could finally feel at ease with as a sculptor. So it was it was almost like a, a solution to a pro, to a couple of different problems that I was facing with my practice at the time when I started working with salvage materials, which was when. Um, so when I first moved to Atlanta, um, that was when I really started using salvaged wood. Um, this is post MFA. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely post. So I had, I had uh, after my MFA, I went and lived in Syracuse, New York, for about three or four years. Worked at a museum there, and then was in South Florida for about three years. Oh, wow. Another museum. Um, so I, it, and then returned to Atlanta. And when I came to Atlanta, did not have a, a job here. Um, followed my wife here to um, to kind of be with her with her job, um, and it'd been something in those in between years after MFA and kind of finding the, my professional practice and finding a way to like navigate 
using materials in as a sculptor, which is a sculpture is a very can be a very expensive process, pro, uh, process right? Sure. Um, and it was kind of a ways of means of like figuring out like how do I still create works of some sort of substantial scale or or in some way um, works that I can uh, put together and take apart and reuse materials that becomes an effective tool and um, for a while there I was kind of using salvage materials from like um, secondhand stores or going out into the natural world and trying to find materials and then when I came to Atlanta uh, it was kind of like building on this idea of finding secondhand things and I started walking around the streets uh, and really what was striking to me was that Atlanta has had such an interesting interaction and dynamic with its architecture um, and with its with its neighborhoods that there was this incredible like resource of material that was just getting Yep. thrown out on yeah. a daily basis yep. and that's a resource that's coming from these incredible 1920s homes that mm -hmm. were built during the big uh, housing boom after the second time Atlanta burned um, and then also so they were either being renovated or torn down or falling apart on their own depending on what neighborhood you're in right. and that's an interesting dynamic to me by itself is thinking about why there are these kind of three kind of resources, the same resource, but there are three different kind of ideas behind those resources. And then there are these, like all this new construction and there's so much waste in new construction. So it's, uh, it became this way of finding a resource to create my artwork out of that was economical for right. somebody that didn't have a job. But then also, um, something that I found like really like had this kind of expansive um, use, you know, this, I found something that was, that I felt was, that could really be uh, utilized in an interesting way. But, um, so yeah, so I mean, materials are, are really important to me in that, in that regard. And wood, I had never really done any wood until I moved to Atlanta and all of a sudden I found this resource and I was like, I'm gonna figure out how to use this in a way that makes sense to me. Um, so people a lot of times will say, well, you're, like, you're a woodworker, right? And I'm like, no, I don't know the first thing about making, like, making right. like, a piece of furniture or cabinet or whatever. But um, I really come at it as just like a raw material, as, mm -hmm. as a material for sculpture. How much has it changed, or has it changed, I would say, um, since when you got here and like now, you know, where every, you know, bar or restaurant you walk in has, you know, the reclaimed wood mm -hmm. and the requisite Edison bulb and all that. But I mean... Yeah, <laughs> not to completely, you know. You don't. You don't know. You could be in Kennesaw. You could be in Carrollton, no, Georgia. You wonder, could be in like, Brooklyn. So true. Yeah. You know, when I yeah. see, I see yeah. when I like in my neighborhood, there are a lot of teardowns and that sort of thing, and I see some of these piles. But I notice now there are a lot of signs that like this is you know like not up for grabs or that's like is it is it tighter? Like is there are there less spoils, um, or am I deluding myself? No, there's like people are just so willing to throw away everything. Oh, okay. It's amazing. I feel like maybe, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, uh, maybe I answer that too quickly. I feel like maybe when I first started salvaging, when I first got to Atlanta, I'd find like old, like giant old heart pine boards in the in a dumpster. And I haven't found that maybe recently, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I won't find that tomorrow. 
I think it's I think there's still this this unfortunate natural understandable inclination to if you've got a lot of stuff and you don't really know what to do with it just throw it away yeah so um, and well, you know, in a lot of the work that I've been doing I've been using new material you know like my earlier salvage material was all old it was all focused on old wood like old material coming out of older homes the newer stuff that I'm doing I'm more interested and I think maybe it might be a response I, I think it is a response to this kind of um, anthropology uh, cool bar kind of like backgroundy kind of aesthetic that uses kind of old wood as like a, as a this kind of general hip hipster aesthetic yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I just there's nothing wrong with it <laughs> like, but it's like a it's like a faux nostalgia yeah. slash yeah. you know and, was that know, anthropology with an IE? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, like, I think as part, partly as a response to that, as I've been using like new material that I specifically have been salvaging, and I think there's a lot to be said about this low class wood that is still coming from a living tree that still yeah, right. has to be harvested, that still has this this very problematic. Um, uh, trajectory within its resource cycle that then just ends up in a dumpster and um, I'm kind of interested in kind of elevating that material in a way um, and I don't see that I don't think I feel like I don't see that quite as much mm -hmm. as that other kind of aesthetic that's cool yeah are there artists that uh, you know from an influence standpoint you know like I mean the obvious and you probably get this all the time but like I, and again, I'm coming more from a painting and drawing uh, fixation, but like Gordon Mata Clark, for instance. I mean, are these people that mean? Yeah. I'm sure you've seen the work, but I mean, is it something you're thinking about? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he was brilliant. Um, if I if I could ever do something half as good as that, I mean, I'll, I'll quit and start selling my artwork full time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, you know. I, yeah, he's definitely an influence. Um, you know, like people like Martin Purrier, like a big influence on me. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that you know I'm always kind of looking at artists that um, that approach um, approach their their practice with a sincerity towards the material. Uh, I'm a I'm a, like definitely like a materials guy. Yeah, you know, like I'm really. Um, very much interested in, in kind of of, of of my interaction with the material, but then also just the, the idea of of elevating a material or having people rethink how one could interact with something that that um, that seems kind of common. Yeah, you've used the phrase dumpster diving in the past. Is that how true yeah. is that? Very. Very true. Very true. All right. Yeah. I've gotten yelled at, thrown out of things. Most of the time, people are pretty nice about it. But, yeah, no, it's straight up. majority of where I find things are either on construction sites with dumpsters or, you know, the dumpsters that people roll up when they're doing renovations. I've gone into, like, abandoned homes that are falling apart and salvage material. Um, that's, that's frightening. Yeah, it's a little. That's a little bit more on the illegal side, 
maybe, but you know, I do it respectfully. Uh, <laughs> I, technically, I think you're not really supposed to be in dumpsters, but yeah, I, I, it's um, to me, it's that's whenever I see a dumpster, I get excited. I, I can't not go and look. Yeah, that is awesome. And it's not like dumpsters that are behind like a restaurant. Right. It's like the yeah. construction, for sure. Yeah. yeah, dumpsters. Yeah, yeah. Although I wouldn't be opposed to going in a dumpster right. behind a restaurant. It's just you know, I'm, I'm looking for the clean material. So the sustainability, how, how much are you working with that term? Because you have the sustainability, both of the materials and the environment, yeah. but then also of your practice, right? I mean, you, economically, you had to make it work Yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, it's, it's really important to me. It's really important to me. Um, it's not something that I necessarily bring up or talk about directly unless I'm talking about the material mm -hmm. and, and the kind of the notion of the, like the material cycle mm -hmm. and especially with the kind of this new salvage wood, mm -hmm. um, you know, like the two by fours that I'm gathering from, from like new construction. Um, uh, I think I, I started kind of hitting like a moral roadblock in my practice around when I was in my finishing my degree, um, at UGA with my MFA is that every, the work that I was producing prior and during that time period, um, I was doing a lot of like welded steel, uh, I did some blown glass things, uh, resin-based material, mm -hmm. like a lot of yeah. like resins. Um, a lot of it was all like brand new source material that I was getting from like, you know, from supply stores. And, uh, a lot of it ended up in dumpsters, you know, or ended up, you know, rotting someplace in some random, you know, not being really, not really having much of a life past it being exhibited in some fashion. And it started really getting under my skin. I mean, other than the fact that it's like costly to do that, but it's also like, I felt like here I am producing work that I felt was really valid and felt attached to and all that, but it's also like for producing work that's really in the big scheme of things being um, being uh, enjoyed or appreciated or experienced by such a small right. entity, such a small group of people, and then just getting wasted. And I really had a lot of issue with that. And I was like, how can I start making work that that continues to have a life past its creation? Or how can I make work that I'm not adding to that cycle of consumption? Right. You know? Another, another item for the object, for the pile. Yeah. Because I, I wrote down a few minutes ago, you said, you know, and, and reusing. And I was curious, like, so, and I'm sure it depends on the piece, but, right. you know, like, what's a typical life cycle for some of this work? Like, you know, Man. in terms of, you know, in painting, yeah. you know, it's easy to sand something down and, right. and, and paint over. Um, some of the best work comes from there, but, um, you know, like typically if you're making something, I'm assuming you, you're grabbing from piece in materials that have been maybe part of multiple works or yeah. how long do you let stuff, I hate to say sit around. I mean, some of these things have probably been exhibited, mm -hmm. you know, um, I I have a I have kind of a no holds barred kind of like 
philosophy with the work that's in my studio is that like if it's in there and I'm working in it and it makes sense to me at the moment I will All I will, I will take I that piece that. down that's that's yeah. fearless so yeah. nothing is precious then to you it, in, no that's in, no things are definitely precious but I try to I try to realize that 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 just because it's precious in that moment doesn't mean that it can't be something just as special in the next um, through that interaction that I might have or that, that way of, of thinking about it. I mean, probably the piece that I've gotten the most, long, uh, most uh, I don't know if this is true, but this is the first thing that comes to my mind. One of the pieces that I did, and it's oftentimes like the large-scale installations that I do end up then being restructured into other pieces. Okay. Which has been an, an incredible revelation for me in my practice is that I've had the ability... And we can get back to your collaboration idea if, if you want yeah, uh, sure. at, on, on top of this. But I've had the ability to do these really, to visualize these large scale installation pieces. Um, but because of this new way of like thinking about recycling my work and reusing material and, and getting material that's already been reused, kind of gives that validation to go ahead and reuse, reuse it again. Um, I did a, a big piece for, uh, I was a, a studio resident for the creative projects, uh, and for my final show with them, I did this really giant piece at the goat farm, uh, and that piece went from, from this enormous, I mean, the tallest structure in this piece was like 25 feet tall, and it was as long as the, the size of Goodson Yards, like, you know, another 20, 25 feet, 30 feet, something like that. That piece is still being reused in other work now, and that was like three years ago, two years ago, something like that, yeah. something like that, and has been like slowly, like so it came apart and has been like slowly being whittled and reshaped and reformed into a like smattering of works. I think that's great. Which is do you, do you think of it? Do you think of it as upcycling or I recycling? Know. I mean, oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the popular term right now. Yeah, yeah this. sure. It could be both. Right? Sure. I guess recycling kind of suggests that the material is, like, turned into something that's truly different than what it was, right? So, like, if you recycle, like, a, you know, a tire and it turns into a part of a road or something, but an upcycle would be something where you're, like, reshaping that same thing. It's still keeping its life. So maybe upcycle in a way. I, don't I think it's entertaining because there's a values judgment that you're applying when you use the term recycle versus upcycle. Yeah, and I love yeah. watching that, you know, play out. But yeah. in your work, it plays a role, right? I mean, you know, yeah. in this particular case, what you're talking about using that, I mean, if it's for a new new work, do you somehow think that that new work is more valuable than the past work? No, it's part of the life of it. Okay. Yeah. So the materials, each of these elements have a life of their own, and this is all... Yeah, and they all have a life of their own, and they also carry the life that they had before, too. Um, I, I, I'm a firm believer, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, like, uh, not spiritual on you guys, but I'm going to get kind of, you know, new agey, that I do believe... I don't <laughs> What's know the difference? Little, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know if this is allowed in this space here, but, no, I mean, I, I, I do believe that, to some degree... Materials have some sort of, of of memory or history attached to them. That is totally true. Yeah, I believe in that. Yeah, and I think that um, look at quartz. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, yeah. And, and oftentimes I use a spiritual um, analogy or a spiritual way of looking at it to explain it to people about uh, object memory um, or space memories. When you think about like going into a church, whether or not you're a religious person, um, there's, there's a sense of, of um, energy there that I feel has been trapped by the, the kind of the imprint of people coming mm-hmm. to this one spot and doing this kind of one ritual over and over and over again. There's an imprint there. Oh. Uh, and, it, and that's like a, a way of, I think, talking about it that seems very easy for most people to understand. Um, and so I'm really interested in that idea translating the work. And I think that you, you, you can't not use salvage material and not think about those things. You know, I mean, looking at your studio floor yeah. now, like there's so much going on on this, on this floor mm. by so many people that have imprinted on it. And what's so, the concrete over here? Yeah, and what's that? Like I, I you know, I, I just thought about that the other day. It. It's it maybe like a the Stonehenge of the yeah, <laughs> some kind of support underneath. I, I don't know why yeah, you would go with concrete from what's below. I mean, is there like a yeah? If there's like a pillar underneath or something. I don't think there is. Well, I don't know. We don't yeah. know. But yeah, I mean, so anyway, I'm I'm interested in that idea, you know, and I think that the the work that. So if I'm salvaging work from my own work, then that's kind of continuing the history of that piece or that material or whatever. I mean, I think what's fascinating to me is then, is it safe to say that you're working entirely like in a site-specific manner? Because in my mind, you know, it's one that unfortunately, as a painter, you can wind up with your own museum or morgue of, uh, you know, past work. I have that too. Yeah, but, there are some pieces that I, you know, I can't I, I'm just talking about the catch-22 for you might be like, um, you know, as soon as you uh, repurpose a piece, does somebody then say, oh, we want we want this piece, this would be great, you know, on site, and are you, would you be willing to rebuild it? Or is it like once it's been, what's the word, decommissioned or yeah. uh, pulled apart, it's, it's over? I mean, like, um, you know, again, which is much more practical versus, say, making, you know, these discrete objects that then you need a giant warehouse to hold on to them for, right. in per- perpetuity. Yeah. Um, I definitely get, I, get I, de- I definitely get people coming to me asking for, they see a work either on my website or in a show, and they're like, I would love to commission you to do a piece like this. Oh, that's, that's great, versus I want that. And you're like, right. yeah, and now that, it's, it's 25 feet tall, and now it's... Right. Yes. Yeah. Thankfully, I haven't had to do that. Yeah, where somebody's like, "I want this," and I'm like, "Well, it's gone." Um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I don't think I would ever. I don't think I could even redo a piece if I tried. I think that's no, because I'm thinking. <laughs> I don't know. No, the L- but the piece somebody is asked, if somebody was like, "Make an exact copy that of this piece," I'm like, "I, I don't think I." But could the do elements that. that go into that piece would never be the same anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, it just wouldn't be the same. It's no. the worst job you've ever wanted, you know, or don't, yeah. you don't want that kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, my, any, in any medium, I think that's hell. part of my undergrad. My I have a, a, a dual concentration in my undergrad in printmaking and sculpture, and one of the reasons why I didn't continue on in printmaking is that I couldn't continue making multiples of things. <laughs> that's, that's right up my alley. I did a lot of monoprints. Yeah, I, I am the... <laughs> <laughs>
Um, yeah. So the piece that's at, um, what's the restaurant? Oh, the Local 3. Local 3. Yeah. We were at your studio uh, when you were working on that, and you were you have your studio space, which you were sharing, mm-hmm. but then you have the hall. Right. And then this piece is what? It's 40 feet. 40 Ooh. feet? Yeah. yeah. And so he has the pieces laid out down the hall, and at that time it wasn't 40 feet. I'd say it was probably half that. Yeah, it might have been half that at that time. I was still working on it, but yeah, it was... It was a long piece. I think it goes back to like that, you know, idea of just like don't letting, like not letting yourself be limited. Because I think my studio, it was a shared space, and my studio total foot feet in one, the longest length was maybe like twenty feet. And uh, yeah. So. What was great about that space was uh, Nikki, Nikki Stars Star, yeah. was in, you know, the first, and so you guys are sharing it, and so you have these great like found object, you know, repurposed pieces, and then you have this uh, taxidermy looking, you know, the combination is just, wow. Yeah, that is actually one thing that I miss the most about um, not having a studio at the Go Farm is, was that um, connection with other artists. And and really, Nikki was one of the few artists that I would actually ever see there, uh, because oftentimes, because I was clocking clocking in and clocking out, I would go drive there and then put my blinders on and walk immediately into the studio yeah. and work. But even just having that other person, that other creative in, uh, person around in that process was really... I think it's so important. Yeah. You know, you know and I'm thinking for me, it's so important, and I think most of us get in that rut where we just want to be working, where you don't have time, you've got deadlines, but, um, you know, to be in somebody else's space, just seeing how, you know how materials are laid out or if you are actually critting work or, yeah um i think it's just so so important uh wherever one is working but that's the i think that's the biggest detriment though to like say the home studio or even yeah. like the, yeah. say the the really yeah. isolated you know like the barn studio in athens you know right. like i always thought that would be really great you know it's, it's so romantic it's, but it's but, yeah unless <laughs> yeah. You, i mean you know again i like yeah, extremely isolated yeah. isolated but i need some people every now and then just to make sure what's yeah. and to be fed you know yeah. and, and hopefully it's a reciprocal yeah. uh, artists are weird like that because i think by nature we're we're recluse creatures yeah but at the same time we want to like have that interaction with, yep. with like the with our like-minded crew so it's like, and then when you don't have that, you don't maybe notice it right off the bat, but it starts influencing you in a way that... How often did were you there working simultaneously? Rarely. Really? Yeah. It was amazing because like our, our schedules were so different where Nikki um, had started... Um, well, she had been working kind of um, as a freelance sculptor with a few of the area organizations she had really pretty much started going off on her own when we started getting a studio together so she was kind of working during the day and then i'd be working at the museum during the day and then coming Uh, working at night so we kind of were flipping but there was always inevitably some sort of overlap that would happen or like you know like she would be working all day and i'd come into the studio and i'd see what she was doing i was like oh that's nice yeah, yeah. or like oh man she's I gotta tell her send her a text like oh no that doesn't look right oh really yeah and we would do that back and forth you know like there would be a kind of a, a critique that would be happening in a way that um that's very grad school yeah <laughs> in a way really that you would honest. never you would yeah. never see the person necessarily but there would be a critique totally there cool. I think that's great that's yeah. invaluable yeah oh yeah that's helpful whether you heat it oh, or not good. and you're like ah shit yeah she's right damn it I gotta do something about that um <laughs> 
But, you know, going back to that, you know, like needing that interaction, you know, I, I, you know earlier I was talking about how I, I really keep my two worlds separate from my job and, and my studio practice. But that is one thing that I can say for my job that feeds my studio practice is that constant interaction with art. Okay. You know, so I am inundated with, uh, with art despite the fact that I'm doing a lot of uh, administrative things sure. that are very much not on the art spectrum. Um, there, I have a daily interaction with uh, either the work that's in the galleries or the artists that we're, we're working towards to put in the shows that are coming up or studio visits or going to be, visit galleries. And So like um, that is at least one thing that I can say for myself that like I, I do, despite the fact that I now have a uh, more of a recluse studio setup. I'm still interacting with a lot of kind of artistic ideas, which is nice. Do you think, um, in, as you know, in your in your artistic career, has your does your day job in any way hurt you? Oh, sure, of course. Does it? Definitely, absolutely. There are sacrifices that that I have I've actively. Um, allowed or become embraced because of my day job for sure yeah but you know I think that's I think that's okay you know I, I think mean, there, I think there would be some places where you would have to kind of uh, decrease a little bit yeah I mean if uh, it, I, I know for a fact that if I uh, were able to work more in my studio I would be more productive in certain aspects of my artistic practice um, but uh, but that um, that reduction in the studio in what I give to the to the museum is is okay with me now. You know, it's something that I've come that I, I am okay with. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's also other like interactions because I'm so adamant about it being a separate world. There are interactions where I could probably exploit my position at the museum for my studio practice, for my artistic practice that I choose not to do. Um, so, and I'm, that's not saying that like as a high horse or like, or being like, oh, look how, like, look how moral I am. It's just more like, yeah, like there, there need, there is definitely an acknowledgement of like, of, of that effect on my practice. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like you, you treat that separation of like church and state, if you will. Uh, I hope. I mean, yeah. who knows if I really do or not. It's like a, you know, the, the more the lines get blurred, the easier it is to, you know. That is so tough. But you do. I mean, you know, I've seen it. You do. I hope so. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a kind of a firm believer of it. Because I've seen other people exploit things like Ooh, that. It's, not good. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Don't <laughs> want that. I think in that short term, I think yeah. 95% of the time it's going to bite you. It yeah. will. It will. Yeah. My, my studio practice... I will obviously want to succeed in what I, as an artist, and want to be. That's funny. That's my first question. I was like, how do you define success? Right. Like, how do, <laughs> right. Like, how do you define success? And and I have really, um, I think as all of us do, that are artists, we have to like define our own success. Um, and those that don't define their our own their own success end up failing really hard because they fail for themselves. You know, plus you're bombarded, or I should say, I'm speaking, but you know, just if, if you look any kind of social media, you're bombarded with 
uh, you know, all these other people's apparent successes, successes, sure. whatever you want yeah, to call yeah. them. And how do you not constantly measure up or, you know, we all do though. Or, you know, you yeah. enter this yeah. competition sure. or this or that. And it's just, you're, it's impossible to, uh, to yeah. not feel like you're missing out or you're, and I think if there isn't the, at the end of the day, if there isn't this like, uh, commitment to say, a studio practice, the the joy of just making work. Yeah, having goals, but like I think otherwise, like I'd go in absolutely insane. Absolutely, and there's yeah. no way I would continue. Yet there's something, there's this yeah. perverse, you know. Despite what's going on in the world, I come to this space, you know, five or six days a week, and I do yeah. it, even though sometimes the world might even be telling me like, knock it off. Right. Yeah. No. You know? Yeah. yeah. No. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think that's, I'm sensing I think that that's from the, you. That's exactly it. You yeah. know, you've got your, your, uh, you're feeding a lot of other folks with your, your day job. And yet then you still somehow find the energy, which is, uh, inspiring. And I think that speaks because you said like post, uh, post MFA, it sounds like, you know, you've had many years in various institutions, mm -hmm. you know, so you went right into that world. Yeah. Um, right into that world, but also right that? into the the, the most desperate, abysmal black hole that most people come out of their MFAs in, it, where like you're trying to grapple with these expectations. Was that, that built was up completely chance, or you know, or, or luck? Did someone say, "Hey, why don't you"? Because I'm trying to think of like you know. Oh, it's get into museum. Yeah, oh, most people yeah. I know either. Yeah, they either yeah, yeah. How did that happen? Um, yeah, totally by chance. And it's interesting because in my job now, it's like. I'm around, obviously around a lot of students. We work with a lot of people. Like we've got interns, we've got student workers. I, we, we've got classes coming in, and that's always the question: is like, well, how did you get into museum world? Into the museum world? How do you like? What's the secret? And um, <laughs> it's like I don't know. Go and you know, go get an MFA, and then not know what to do with your life afterwards. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, at least it's within the field. I mean, it's right, not yeah. like, you know, how did you become an actuary? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. No, I truly, <laughs> I really did just fall into it. And, and the interesting thing about the museum world, um, and, I, and I always offer this caveat to the newer generation, is that more and more that's, this is not becoming the trend. But a lot of the folks that you meet in the museum world fell into the museum world. They didn't go to school to be museum people. Yeah, that's um, true. They went to school to be something else, and then their their skill set translated well into into working within museums. So my undergraduate school had a university museum that I w ended up working at. Oh, great! And then when I went to UGA. Um, I was on a graduate assistantship, and part of that, my duties there was to work at the gallery programs at UGA. Uh, and then when I got out of out of school uh, with my MFA, I, I followed my then partner to Syracuse, New York, um, the dark hole of the world. Um, sorry, anybody that, that might be listening from Syracuse. I know Daniel is from Syracuse. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry, Syracuse listeners. Actually, it's not that bad. The bread there is amazing, and there's some other things there. Um, just for me, it was kind of it was a tough place to transition to from Athens, Georgia, which was a really like an incredible artistic place. Yeah. Um, I had a great art career here. I was showing at then Fagel Gallery when when she was around and. Um, had some clients that were interested in work, and then I kind of up uprooted myself and moved to this place. And I was like, okay, great. Like, I got my MFA. I'm 
gonna be an artist, now what do I do? And all, the only experience I really had was working in museums, and so I went down to the local museum, and I was like, you know, <laughs> I was like, naively, I was like, go up to the museum and be like, hey, you guys got any, any work for me? <laughs> and they were like, no. Uh, but we're always looking for security guards. And I was like, really? Really? Yeah. So I went, uh, and this was, they weren't security guards that worked specifically yeah. for the museum. They were just contract, like, yeah. you know, dudes in suits, security guards. So I went to the security guard agency in Syracuse, New York. I had no idea. Knocked on the door and said, I want to work as a security guard for you guys, but if, I, if you hired me, I want to work at the museum. Wow. And they were like, okay, you're weird. Uh, and, you know, so, and, you know, it's like, so that's what I did. I went, got, I've got, I'm certified as a security guard. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I got Is that my, across state lines? Yeah, yeah, Really? Yeah, so yeah. you can do. You guys are secure here right I'm, now. I felt it. I felt it as soon as yeah. you showed up. Yeah. I felt, there are so many. Uh, so, yeah, I went and did that and I worked there for about almost a year. And then I got to know the people at the, at the museum. And then when a position opened up uh, in the curatorial department, um, I put my hat in, and they were like, "Yeah, you're awesome. We know you. We trust you, and we're secure. You make us feel secure." Yeah. yeah. So that, that's really how I, I truly became uh, somebody that started working within professional museums. And, there are so and just many that like through. New York artists that work. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like so true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's my sage advice to all of the new students at KSU and the people that I interact with is like go, and it's like like go and just. Like if you really, it's always that like old adage. Like if you want to be an actor, you gotta go and work on the sets. You yeah. know, like the like that's the, you know, they're always talking about like you know if you want to be a musician, you gotta go work, you know, as a roadie or whatever, and then work, you know, like get to know the people that are, are in the industry, and then you have to get involved on some level, and whether yeah. that like with some of these institutions, I mean, I think so many people think that they just want to show. Yeah, and they don't care how it happens, and it's like, well, what what could you possibly do in return? You know, it's like make yourself indispensable on some level. You yeah, know? like, and I think an arts education, as much as the Wall Street Journal likes to poo-poo it, or parents writing those checks. I mean, on one hand, though, oh it's my. like it can teach you know creative problem solving, and or yeah. in some cases, do, you know, a sense of you know. In my opinion, it's one of the best degrees you could have because if you really take hold of the, the, uh, the idea of what it is to have that degree, it's, it's all about creative problem solving. Yeah. It's yeah, all about... Feed yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're not getting wooed on graduation day with Goldman Sachs and... Uh, mm. Yeah. But. You know, the security guard thing. The best conversations I've had in museums are always with the security guards. Yeah. Because they know... They know... They've watched audiences react to the work They've yeah. watched the trends happen from opening to... Yeah. The frontline staff on museums are, are amazing individuals. Whether yes. it's the security guards, yeah. it's the, the, the people that are kind of like, you know, working the galleries, the people yeah. that are, the, the, you know, working at the front desk. They're the ones that truly know the institution. You know, yeah. oftentimes the, the individuals that are running the organization, they're sitting you know, in their office someplace with these big ideas and, you know, worried about the bottom line and yeah, worried about, yeah. like, you know, managing their staff and all that. It's like the the folks that are on, in the galleries actually get to see the people interacting mm -hmm. with the work in a way that is that and the education people, you know. Do you like, remember this uh, Virginia, Virginia Mocha thing with, uh, oh, what's the magazine? High Fructose. 
Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The did, high fructose. Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah. It was like um, they were. It was. Was it censored or was it just like a they, like the community? The Catholics was all were angry about up it. in an uproar about it. Yeah. Oh, they were mad, and I think it was a Mark Ryden piece that they were so yeah. pissed off about. But um, I remember going in there. It's the like, security guard. It's like, hey, what's uh, how's it how's it been? Well, yeah, like what's the you know, and reaction? She, yeah. she gave me the she whole did. story. You yeah. know, yeah. That's interesting. Sometimes they're they're very uh, tight lipped. And who else has that kind of perspective, right? Oh yeah, amazing. Yeah, there are some guards though, specifically at the Whitney though, that like I've seen for years, and I'm like I'm dying to know. Like they've got to be like there's a guy in general, or one guy in particular. I'm thinking of that's got to be an artist. I mean, got this amazing white hair. Kind of reminds me of like a John McEnroe meets seen every time I'm there. <laughs> and I see Marilyn Minter. Every single time I'm in Chelsea. Really? Last, he does. Well, he always sees me last three times. I, I had my brush with fame with talking with Jerry Saltz. And then he's like, excuse me, like, I have to blow you off for a very famous artist. And it was Marilyn Minter walking in. Oh, that's and amazing. I, there's a great picture right. of like, the, the guest book, my name, and then hers, right? And of course, hers is like 50 times bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she must, I think she lives in the neighborhood, but she's always... The next time you see her, you'll have to tell her about I know, I'm like, I saw you... Showing Kennesaw. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, my brush with greatness. My yeah. brush with fame. Yeah, security job. I mean, not to go on a, on a weird tangent about like people that work security work, but like, it, as somebody who's worked with in that world for a year, it attracts the most unique individuals. I think jobs like that just have a tendency of, of, of attracting yeah. these like just really fascinatingly strange and weird and like you know dynamic and individual because it's the people that are kind of like on the periphery or like because nobody goes well some people do but majority of people don't go into the security business like as that that's like the the the, their like end goal right so it's a lot of like transient people that are kind of like working through it's like when i was working in in restaurants i mean like that's it's like a similar kind of like it's like these like interesting group of people that have all these different interests like that are now just this like one homogenous unified thing you know you put on this like this suit or this uniform and you're supposed to be just this kind of you know bland you know person but like really you've got this you're such like this really interesting individual (laughs) what were your uh you got any like action stories uh action stories yeah from the trenches anything take anybody down what did you have a taser no, 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 no. See, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, most security companies, like, you are totally unarmed, no, and you're not allowed to because it's against the law. Um, so, like, you're really, it's really, the, the whole premise around security guards is, it's, a, it's basically messing with humans in, on a psychological level. So, it's the psychology of seeing somebody in a uniform that is supposed to make people feel comfortable but also make people listen to you and it's amazing that if you put on just like a like a stupid like cheap (laughs) suit with a badge on it people will listen to your every word did they do that's the whole structure behind security guards it's amazing i'm not talking about like armed guards or anything like that straight security guards that's the whole psychology behind it so you saw a difference oh absolutely really yeah it's fascinating yeah, the whole industry is based on that. Like that, like with, without without Persuasion. the uniform, yeah. the industry no, would be that. would yeah. be ruined. I, yeah, but the but the uniforms are so bad. 
but you still listen. They're to always them, cheap. Yeah, they're, they're always cheap, yeah. you know, yeah. epaulets. I they want epaulets. Yep. Yeah. But I want bigger epaulets. You know. Yeah. You want to blend in though. Yeah. And a clip-on tie. I had a clip-on tie. Oh, it's, it's clip-on. Yep. That's in case you have to suddenly just bust out. Yeah. Right. Full yeah. sprint. Give them breakaway pants and a. Yeah. Uh, and a <laughs> yeah. I unfortunately don't really have anything like Dude, really no. Really? Yeah. So, like, what would you have done, like, in the case of, like, the first year of the Clifford Still Museum, where the, the woman, I guess she urinated and was rubbing her buttocks against one of Clifford Still's uh, yeah. works? No, I probably would have laughed. What would you do? Would you insert yeah, yourself between her and the painting? That doesn't sound right. Uh, it depends. No, I guarantee you that anybody, the majority of people that are working security, they're just like, they're just going to look at it and be like, I'm not dealing with Yes. Somebody else like pick up the phone and call somebody oh, else to do it. Yeah. Clean up on aisle four. That's right. Yeah. Did you have zip ties or anything? Like, could you arrest no, anybody or anything? Yeah. You couldn't really do anything but persuade them that's with your the, epilepsy. That is the entire training that's around being a security guard. I bet really? you has got like some subterranean uh, cells no, do. down there. Where yeah. just like, you were writing in pen. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. Fascinating. Yeah, read a lot of books. Like, spent a lot of time looking. How did you do? Oh, like, how did you do the book? Did you find a place? Because I watch some of these guys, and they will go to the area where the cameras aren't. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's positions, so they use things. the phones. Yeah. Then, oh, okay. Yeah, but this is you... really like like pre prevalence of phone. I mean, like we had cell phone, but like it was still like there was like the. You know, there was like texting really still wasn't that thing. Gotcha. You know, it didn't have smartphones, so like phones was less of a thing. But yeah, like I would, I would like, I would cut books up so that they would fit in my jacket pocket. So I'd have, have I would have a set amount of chapters that I could like, you know, wow. have with me on the job. Um, and then like there, there are inevitably jobs that you go to that you're working at like a desk or something, or like, you know, you're sitting in your car in a parking lot for like hours on end. And like then you just you know, sit. Really, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's all sorts of but security that. guard techniques that you, you know exactly where the cameras are. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no doubt. Pages taped to your arm. Yeah, right, yeah, that's great. But that kind of discipline to take a book and break it down into, and then you know, do that, and then you know, yeah, come on. I mean, there's some discipline there. I mean, it's like sure. not everybody has that. Uh, you know, I mean. Otherwise, I would just go insane because it's like you're working a 12-hour shift and you're like, Ooh. and it was funny. Like when I when I started working on staff, like I still knew all the security guards there, so like they were like a little worried that I'd like call them out, like on the like all because we all knew, like I knew all of the. <laughs> I didn't. <know. laughs> I'm no snitch. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh. Connect with Joe and Matthew and find out more about this and other episodes at BrainFuzzPodcast.com. On social media, share your thoughts and comments with hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. Now, get out there and engage in the dialogue.